0: Hey there, hello PhD listeners. Dan and I had a great episode lined up and recorded about the life of a humanities PhD student, but some technical audio bugs got in the way, so we will be bringing that episode to you next time. Instead, for this week, we're going to share an episode from a year and a half ago where we talked with Marilis Hansen about identifying your motivated abilities to help you find a career that fits you. Those of you who listened to last week's show, where we answered some listener questions about the decision to leave a PhD program, will recall that we referenced this past episode and our advice to those listeners. Self-reflecting and self-assessing is so important for grad students, as you consider where your training is taking you with regard to your career. So we hope this episode helps you do just that. We'd like to also thank our friends at ProMega, PROMEGA's Student Resource Center offers a collection of resources on molecular biology techniques, as well as resources on wellness and career development during graduate school. You can find video libraries, blog articles, and technical guides. The site's been recently redesigned with new information that's easy to find. Everything on there is designed to help students succeed in research, career, and life. You can find all of this at promega.com slash hellostudents. And now, on with the show. This episode of Hello
1: PhD is sponsored by ProMega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I think don't end up like Dan is great life
0: advice. (laughs) (laughs) I can specifically remember one conversation where I was told, you could be a faculty member. And in that moment, I remember then having the confidence to say, but I don't want to.
1: To hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk with a psychologist about how to match your unique personality traits to a career you'll love. Stay with us.
0: And we're back. This is Hello PhD episode 144. I'm Joshua Hall.
1: I'm Daniel Erneman.
0: and we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy fall, Dan. Oh, I said happy Halloween, Dan.
1: We are quickly approaching Halloween. I'm not sure how happy it's going to be during a pandemic, but we're going to make the best of it. What are you doing with the kids?
0: I think a holiday where you're supposed to wear masks is probably a good thing for a pandemic.
1: You're going to have to wear masks on (laughs) top of masks, though, because I think even if you put on your plastic mask, that is not a sufficient barrier to the coronavirus.
0: I think the hottest costumes will be vampire during a pandemic nurse during a pandemic police officer during a pandemic podcaster during a pandemic. You just put a mask on whatever costume you are going to do.
1: And my, you're done. I've got, I, I, my kids are going to be a creeper from Minecraft and Snorlax from Pokemon. And it is adorable. What do you have? Um,
0: uh, my kids are going to be a zombie baseball player and a zombie bride which is excellent because they are uh, clothing items and costumes we already had just with a little bit of fake blood added. So, perfect. Yeah, it
1: sounds like a good idea. Josh, you trick-or-treated for us and brought us back a treat. No tricks. Well, a little bit of a trick. (laughs) I'm going to take that back. Slight trick.
0: Yeah, I'll let you uh, reserve judgment for that in just a minute. So, you're right, Dan. I was lucky enough to go to the mountains of Virginia slash North Carolina. I was right on the Virginia, North Carolina border uh, near Pilot Mountain, uh, North Carolina. And one day, one afternoon, we were looking for something to do with the family. And I discovered there was a winery that was close by where we were staying called Round Peak Vineyards. And get this, Dan, uh, you know my family, so you can see what a good fit this was for us. It was a vineyard winery and it had wine tasting, a dog park, and disc golf
1: it's it's heaven in the mountains of virginia
0: it was amazing we uh we played a round of disc golf right in between the vines it was awesome have you played disc golf dan
1: i have probably once a hundred years ago
0: well what was cool so you're familiar with what the i'm familiar with the concept of it yes and you're familiar with the disc golf baskets look like you've got the chains and the little baskets so the baskets the the basket portion was actually a wine barrel that was cut in half how cool is that? So you're actually throwing into it's these wine barrels.
1: Right on theme. And did you get? Did they serve you while you were playing?
0: Uh, you could do that. We did wait and sit. They had some nice socially distanced outdoor Something tables. Something for the kids.
1: Yeah. A little wine for the kids.
0: <laughs> a little grape juice. In
1: Italy, it'd be perfectly acceptable.
0: But that's true. That's true. Uh, not in North Carolina, unfortunately. So this winery also had a brewing arm, and they had some beers on tap, too. So they were affiliated with Skull Camp Brewing, and this is what caught my attention, Dan. I thought, we have to have this on the show. One of the things they experiment with there is co-fermenting beer with grapes they grow at the vineyard.
1: Yes, (laughs) and this is how you pitched it to me. It's like beer made with wine.
0: It's like when you can't decide, do I want some beer, do I want some wine? Now you don't have to choose. (laughs) So...
1: (laughs) No one has ever said that.
0: <laughs> well, this usually might... you
1: want one or the other.
0: Well, I want to see what you think of this one, Dan. So, what I got for us? This is from Skull Camp Brewing. As I mentioned, this is Jack's Brood Belgian Blonde Ale with Sangiovese grapes. So
1: I feel like we have to spell this because it's not b r e w e d. It is b r o o d. The brood, the the oh, group yes. of children belonging to jack jack's,
0: yes, brood. jack's brood like boo but brew brood yeah
1: <laughs> exactly yeah so um, i was skeptical i have to say i was skeptical but it does it tastes like a combination of wine and beer it is bizarre but it is precisely what it tastes like
0: and it's actually it's actually not terrible like i'm i'm perfectly happy drinking this
1: you know it it, it probably Most aligns for me taste-wise with a cider because ciders have a little bit of the sweetness, a little bit of the sometimes ciders are brewed with hops. You have that combination of flavors. That's what it tastes like to me Uh, because it's a little bit bubbly, but it's wine. I don't know. Closest to a cider. If you're a cider lover, I think you're going to like this.
0: Well, and I will say they do at different points in the year have different types of beer brewed with different types of grapes. And I think the Belgian ale, with the Sangiovese grapes, is probably going to be the least offensive. Uh, a Sangiovese grape is known for high acidity, but also light body, so it's not going to overpower the beer. A porter, Merlot blend, <laughs> <laughs> it's, might, it's a an different can, story. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I do. I find that I'm not a big cider fan. Actually, I usually find ciders, even the drier ones, to be a little too sweet for my taste. But this is not bad. This is uh, quaffable.
1: Well, it is unique, and we, we do strive to do – during the IPA free fall, which we are in the middle of, we try to pick ethanols that don't fit our standard profile, and you succeeded – And it's not terrible, so I'm really excited. And this is not a zero, what is it, McLobe zero or Bud Light (laughs) zero? What is it you're trying to give
0: us? No, this is the real deal. This is a 7.1% ABV, 21 IBUs. Uh, But if you can't find the Skull Camp, uh, I think you could potentially recreate this if you found your own blonde ale and a glass of white wine and you mixed them together. Try it. (laughs) Let us know what you think. (laughs) (laughs) Never,
1: never try that. Pro tip.
0: Halloween punch.
1: All right, Josh. Well, let's move on with the show.
0: All right, Dan. So mixing beer and wine wasn't as bad as we thought, but you know what would be bad? Tell me. Mixing your cell lines.
1: It has happened to me before. Not great. Not great. True fact, Josh. When I was an undergraduate, after several weeks or months months of a project, we found out that the cell lines had been mixed, and it was not great. So why do you bring this up?
0: Well, Dan, our friends at Promega let us know that there was a study published in PLOS One that found over 32,000 research articles based on misidentified cell lines. And the authors estimate there are almost half a million more just like them. Wow. that's
1: With my name on those papers?
0: <laughs> One of those may be your paper, Dan. Uh... Was
1: this their way of calling me
0: out? <laughs> was very, this was a very, uh, it's
1: a very subtle way. Very
0: subtle, uh, but you know, cell line authentication is getting more and more attention. The NIH, for example, now requires proof of authentication, and many journals are now requiring, requiring it for submissions, including all Nature journals. And Promega scientists have been working hard to address this problem, including serving on the American National Standards Institute committee that drafted the official authentication guidelines they prepared some in-depth resources to help you authenticate your cell lines or find services that will do it for you. Don't end up like Dan, wasting several <laughs> months of your precious time. Uh, but if you want to learn more, you can go to www.promega.com slash PhD.
1: I think don't end up like Dan is great life <laughs> advice.
0: That's why we have the show, Dan.
1: That is why. Uh, and, and with that, Josh, speaking of don't end up like Dan... I'm so excited about today's topic because this is the episode of Don't End Up Like Dan.
0: Dan, we talk on the show all the time about the importance of grad students and postdocs too, of making sure they spend some time during their training to self-reflect on who they are, what motivates them, what inspires them, what their values are, and, and using that info to guide them towards a fulfilling career after grad school. I know, Dan, that's something that you have been extremely passionate about since your time in grad school.
1: You're so right, Josh. I have spoken about it on this show in and in a variety of episodes, but I felt so lost in the process of graduate school, working so hard to get there and then finding myself in a really lost. I I got there and then I felt like this is not for me and I didn't understand how I came to that point and I didn't understand how had to get out of it. I didn't understand what it was I wanted to move toward. And that moment was so scary for me and, and so challenging. But in that moment, I found, um, I did a lot of reading. And one of the books that really helped me out was written by an author named Marlis Hansen. And I worked with her a little bit. I actually contacted her. And she helped me to identify some of the skills that I really wanted to use and some of the ways that I was personally motivated to work. And that helped me identify some changes I could make to my career that would get me out of that rut and into something that I loved. And Josh, 15 years later, I'm doing things I love, and I have for the last 15 years, because of my ability to say, here are the 10 things that are important to me in in the way I work. So what I'm so excited about is I called her up this week, and we got to talk about what it takes to make a career that you'll love – and how to identify those factors that, are, that you're kind of born with. And that you can develop over the course of your life to make that perfect fit with your career and your life. Uh, and I'm, I'm just so excited to, for you to hear it, Josh. So please take a listen.
2: My name is Marlis Hansen. I have uh, my own consulting company called Marlis Hansen Incorporated, and we do primarily management development, assessment, and crew development.
1: Wonderful, and I'm so delighted to have you on the show. It's some You're a person I've wanted to talk to for the podcast for a, a number of years. Some of our listeners will know a little bit about my history and finding myself kind of in grad school. I was a fourth-year graduate student when you and I first spoke. I was totally miserable, totally depressed. I felt stuck on a career path that didn't fit. And, and I really wondered whether I would ever find work that made me happy. Uh, and I had done all of the reading. I read every career book on the shelf. I went to university career services. I took every psychometric test. And I, I just felt like nothing told me what I wanted to know, which was, what kind of work would I enjoy? And you and I got connected through your book, Passion and Purpose, How to Identify and Leverage the Powerful Patterns that Shape Your Work Life. And you helped me understand my motivated abilities, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, I think you're going to take our listeners through some of your work and what this means, but just by way of introduction, how did I end up as a, as a graduate student with many, many years of training and much focus to get into graduate school to become a scientist How did I and and other people like me, why is it so hard for us to make predictions, accurate predictions about our own career direction?
2: Well, it's it's an interesting kind of phenomena that I think we have learned a good bit about. Most of my work throughout the years has been with people with graduate level education, engineers and scientists and, and financial analysts and so forth. And there seems to be a phenomena that that makes it more difficult for people who are sort of academically gifted to make more accurate decisions about their career direction and i think what the the bottom line sort of is is that it being capable of learning something doesn't necessarily translate into being able to perform it or into sustaining that performance over a period of years and most of all as as you alluded to earlier even enjoying Performing the role, so it's it's really easy for people who have the academic you know kind of talents to get into areas that they really you know it can't, it is not clear what is going to work for them. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. I think of um, uh, of Shane, was an en- honors engineering student that I worked with recently, and he was, had just been terminated after only six months as an engineering field representative. And, you know, he was astounded that he just couldn't keep his performance up. But when I talked to him, I found that he was really motivated by measurable results and, and recognition and, and praise, if you will, and, and visibility. And here this field engineering position, he was sort of out there by himself. And there really wasn't any of those things that I just mentioned. And he just could not make himself uh, get up in the morning and eventually it cost him his job. And he you know, he felt so bad about it himself, blamed himself for not being able to make it work as he had so many things in his life. And, and I also think of Sarah, who was a PhD physicist, really, really bright lady. After a year working in a research lab, uh, she was just really discouraged and depressed. And she, she discovered that Working with the more abstract concepts and theories, having a, a blank sheet as, a, as for her job, it was totally different from her, you know, experience in school where she had a textbook with the directions and she had the procedures in the lab. So here again, it was a really a misfit of her talent and the requirements for the job, and that just really leaves people. Perplexed about what is going wrong and what to, what to do about it.
1: And you're 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 not describing these are not lazy people. These are not unintelligent people. These are not poorly trained people. These are people who had a lot of inherent talent. But what you're saying is it just is not fitting with what it is they're trying to do, and that's starting to impact them personally you, you described a, right. you know feelings of depression of not being able to wake up and that was exactly my experience i didn't feel that way before this period of my life i haven't felt that way after but during that period i just felt so hopeless and and it sounds it sounds like you're hearing that from other people
2: it's the classic job misfit kind of symptoms if you will and i'm you know i i would be a very rich lady if i had a hundred dollars for every person that has told me that <laughs> over the years <laughs> um because it, it and, and as we started out, you know, earlier to say it, it seems to hit people who have this tr- capability to learn more profoundly because one they're really used to being able to do whatever they want to do and, and be successful in it, and secondly, learning it doesn't necessarily mean being able to perform it, right?
1: Yeah, that makes that's
2: sense. an important concept, and of course they have. They may have career uh, frustration or, or, or questions, for, just like other people, and, and make decisions because the you know they think the jobs is for them because it's high paying or it's prestigious or it's something that Uncle Harry did or Aunt Sally was good at or they they choose the career for the wrong reason. Um, and, but it sometimes really boils down to this: just believing that they can do anything that they you know want to do and what they choose just doesn't fit the performance that they're able to provide.
1: Yeah. That, that makes so much sense. There are many factors that influence our choices. Yes. Um, And what, what you write about and and what you've worked on is some other factors that we should look at and, and probably that are more important to choosing a career that has a good fit. So what are those critical factors if we want to make an informed career decision?
2: Well, it's the bottom line really is that the individual must really understand what it is that he or she is motivated to do. And I use that word motivated to, to precisely address actions that a person really enjoys doing and feels they do really well. So those are the criteria that help us to understand you know, what it is we're really motivated to do. And it seems like a fairly simple explanation, but it's really a fairly complicated concept. And it is a concept that is generally not understood in our society. And I think that's, you know, it's a really big factor here because we're really, most of us are taught that we can do anything we want to do if we work hard enough. And, you know, our parents think they're kind of doing us a, st- a favor to uh, inject that kind of thinking. And of course, the, the perseverance of it all is certainly um, valuable, but it still is actually misleading. And it gets us into all kinds of career misfits. And uh, as we've said earlier, especially for people who seem to be you know, academically uh, motivated to learn, because they can learn most anything, but again, performing it is the issue. So it's going back to Understanding what it is really motivated for you.
1: Well, and I think that's so important. And, and the two parts of what you said—something you enjoy doing and that you're good at—because I think what you're describing is, if I worked really hard, I might be able to get good at something, but I may be miserable doing it. So, can you can you break that down a little bit? The what makes a motivated ability?
2: Sure, um, and maybe we can get into actually uh, the, the description uh, of this a little bit more precise. There are certain themes that reoccur in events or achievements that you uh, select as being things that you've enjoyed doing and you do well. If we look at the descriptions of those achievements, we we see these themes appearing. And they seem to appear very early in, in one's life and and surprisingly remain you know, pretty constant throughout one's life. It takes a pretty traumatic experience to change really the nature of what a person is motivated to do. Uh, these they, they endure in your in your behavior patterns sort of like a trunk on a tree. And the aspects of your of your motivations, what it is you do well and enjoy doing, they kind of are explained by five different categories that form what we call your motivational pattern. And this of course is the heart of this uh, assessment that we're using is called the system for identifying motivated abilities, SEMA for short. And it's just so important to understand this pattern or this design that you have because it profoundly impacts your productivity and your self-esteem and your relationships in your life and just your whole, the whole package Um, you got. It's just really important to find something that you are, a good fit for uh, in terms of performing so that you are able to engage and utilize this important aspect of your, of your behavior.
1: Yeah. It is a little bit like a, a blueprint almost for the things that you may enjoy. I have mine from uh, 15 years ago when, when we worked together on this and as I looked over it just recently, as I was preparing for this, I saw things in there, you know, there were descriptions of certain motivated abilities of mine, and there are things in there that it says I may be motivated, let's say to work with physical objects to build things with lumber to work with paint and at the time that was i I couldn't say that was true for me um, because I had never experienced those things. I lived in an apartment all my life now that I own a house, I love doing those projects <laughs> I am, i'm I'm constant every weekend I'm building something new so what was so interesting to me is Having this pattern identified, you saw things in there that I didn't even see being myself. And I think that's what's so powerful here. So can you talk to us about what a motivational pattern looks like? I've hinted at a few of the items, but can you take us through it?
2: There's really five categories that form the pattern, that form the SEMA pattern. And and these five categories, they work together in the system, and we'll try to you know emphasize this as we go along. But to to just kind of think of these five as being critical to what you should know about yourself and in that which you should you know try to find evidence of so that it's just really based on solid information so so the first one is a subject matter what is it that you really like to work with you know is it people or science or policies or details or or maybe it's some combination of these things but there should be, you know, four or five of these that recur in your uh, achievements that you t- that you select that tell us what it is you like to work with. And then number two is your motivated abilities, and these are how you do what you really want to do. What are you, the abilities do you engage to accomplish these tasks? Maybe it's research or teaching or or advising or you know just many. Different options that we have here. The abilities that you use to perform what it is you are interested in doing. Certain motivated circumstances are the third component. And that addresses things like what gets you started? What, what sustains your motivation? Uh, how much structure that you, do you need? Really important one. Can you work from a blank page? What results do you, are you seeking? Are you, you know, looking for a measurable result or a finished product? Or maybe it's just a response from someone or recognition. Are you creative? And how do you handle routine? I mean, there's just all kinds of questions that a person should be able to understand about themselves that define the environment that, or circumstances that you want to work in that you'll be most motivated. Then number four is your operating relationship, how you prefer to relate to others in your work. You like to work alone or in a team or maybe you are a moving force or maybe you just like to kick things off and be a spearheader. Maybe you want to uh, oversee or direct others in, in the performance of these achievements. So, again, very important component uh, of your motivation. Then lastly, what is it that you're really seeking from your efforts. Each of us has, you know, some particular sort of purpose that we're seeking with our efforts. Maybe it's to be the best or maybe we want to meet a challenge or reach a goal, maybe to have an impact or show our proficiency, meet the needs of other people, you know, or maybe there's some combination. But if you are able to accomplish this result with your work, you're going to be a much more satisfied person And productive individual than if you're frustrated in this effort. So again, five categories form a system for your motivated abilities.
1: And and so why is that so important for, for me and for everybody listening to know and understand these? Are there places that they will be able to use that information?
2: Absolutely. And you want to know what it is about yourself because this is so pervasive this uh, phenomenon is so pervasive, and it really controls your work-related behavior. It's not just some casual piece of information that you, you know, put on a shelf someplace, because it's operational every day of your life, and you need to understand how it really controls our behavior. And, and again, there's, there are some characteristics, I think, that are really important to recognize about um, the, the motivation. Uh, first of all, it, it, it's innate. And by innate, I mean, to really come into this world with some combination of these motivations that form um, your particular, and we call it for not lack of a better word, your design. It's kind of like a snowflake that each of us have this combo, special combination of motivations that uh, come, you know, work together to form this pattern for us. And this pattern remains, as we said earlier, pretty constant throughout your life. But it, it but it isn't that it's real static. In matter of fact, your your best chances of learning and developing is to understand and develop the motivations within this pattern. So it's like building on your strengths rather than fixing your limitation.
1: No, it's so true. And I, you know, when when I first worked with you, I did not have children then. I have children now. And it is incredible to me. How different my two boys are, you could set them both down with a stack of Lego, and one will build incredible structures and just love it and the other one will take the characters and talk to them and make up stories and they'll They might climb the structure his brother made, but he that 's not what he 's motivated by and i you know I think to myself well genetically they 're very similar to each other and and they 're very similar to my wife and I obviously but they are so different in how they approach the world, and I, I just see that continue to develop as they grow.
2: It, that's, that's just such a uh, relevant story, uh, Daniel, and it's, I think it's so much fun in, in raising children and in, uh, ha- you know, looking at different ways uh, students in class approach tasks and You know, once you understand this phenomena of a motivation, it's so much fun to see it expressed because you recognize it so much more readily, you know, you know, you know know what's going on. And for parents, I think it's just especially important to be able to encourage children, you know, to do what really is fun for them and, and develop that area and not try to get them to become something else. Uh, that you may would have, you know, maybe, maybe you would like.
1: It. To force yeah. them to to behave like me or to go into a career that maybe I liked or to put them in after-school programs about things that I care about versus exactly. watching what they are drawn to and and nurturing them in that growth. A
2: uh, it's, it's little free really...
1: parenting advice today for everybody listening.
2: <laughs> it should be required for all... Uh, Uh, parenting glasses I think to to, uh, explore this so we know it's uh, innate uh, we know it's enduring yeah I mean it's going to last it's going to last a lifetime takes a lot to change it and you don't want to change it you want to develop this this uh, pattern that is uniquely yours it's irresistible that means regardless of the environment or the circumstance your motivations are going to they're going to be expressed somewhere in your life if you can't do what you're really motivated to do on your job you'll probably find some avocational or after hours way of of finding something to do that fits with that it's powerful in that sense as you really can't can ignore it yeah,
1: yeah my my example here is in in my profile there is a a building and developing component and i've you know, tweaking things, trying to make them better, improving a process. And that got me into so much trouble when I worked in a lab because the goal is to complete the experiment precisely as it is written out every single time. And if you do it 50 times, you do it 50 times the same way. But irresistibly, I would want to, well, I could probably do this a little more efficiently if I just did it this way and the experiment wouldn't work and I'd be frustrated. But like you say, it comes out. You cannot stop yourself from expressing it.
2: That's an excellent example that it, it really the power that this has in, in expressing itself is just really phenomenal and we need to pay attention to it.
1: You choose to make it a positive or a negative expression but it will be expressed
2: That's right that's, that's a good way of putting it and it's insatiable meaning you never really get tired of doing it once you put your finger on what is really motivating it's you you're going to really appreciate knowing you know that you can you can count on it and and that it just kind of never goes away uh, for me it's like teaching uh when i was a kid i drove my siblings not playing school and they were some of them were more you know fatigued with that than the others uh, <laughs> but you know it's been a lifetime of some kind of teaching and you know here i am on zoom who'd, who'd ever thought of that you know?
1: that's right it continues
2: <laughs> yeah, it continues
1: yeah that is that is so important can you talk a little bit about? some of the common poor job fit issues that people might experience, you know, beyond some of the, the emotional impact, the distress for the person, this manifest, if you don't know your profile or if you're working against it, how does that show up in your work? Because I don't think everybody is, is where I was in terms of just totally in a misfit place in their career. But, but there are probably other subtler hints that you're in a misfit position
2: yes yes and and many of us uh, learn to tolerate or or in some way manage those misfit situations that you know can be fairly successful once you know what's going on right so and, and you're kind of able to move beyond the blame stage and move into the strategy stage but some of the some of the poor fit situations that are particularly common is when the amount of direction that is provided by the supervisor doesn't match the needs of the employee now some people you know want clear directions and the details yet other people really want to be left alone uh, to perform their work and this mismatch with the supervisor and it can either one of them can be you know one way or the other but it's the mismatch that really can become an issue if it's not recognized and addressed And once you understand it, then you can sit down and work out some kind of a, you know, negotiation for just how much uh, each, you know, needs and hand can offer. But until that happens, sometimes it turns into blaming, you know, poor relationship or favoritism or you name it, you know.
1: Yeah, this one will ring very clear for people working in labs um, with the, you know, the principal investigator of the lab and the students and the postdocs managerial issues arise all the time. And a lot of that is because you're not trained to be a manager when you become a principal investigator. But I, I hear a lot of this from our listeners that this person is watching me like a hawk and I can't get my work done. Or the other side, they're always away and I need more direction. And and so there's a spectrum of mismatch there.
2: Absolutely. and And one other really common job fit that relates closely to what you've just said Daniel, is that the subject matter preference of the individual doesn't match their job. And sometimes that happens when, uh, let's take a, a, a lab situation, uh, say it, uh, that uh, biology has been the primary interest of an individual and he, and he or she comes into a lab, performs really well, and soon gets promoted to team leader and then maybe to supervisor, Right. So now they've got maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 people that they're responsible for. And so their daily uh, work becomes not the research on biological uh, issues that they're interested in, but it becomes managing the performance of others, right? And doing performance appraisals and logistics and answering complaints and dealing with management above you and, and all of a sudden, you know, the individual may say, what's going on here? I don't even get to do any of my work that I'm really interested in anymore. Right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and tragically, the people who would have loved the, the people management and the budget management and all of those things never make it to that level because they were probably less successful uh, in the, yes. s- the career steps that you needed to get there. So it is <laughs> broken up and
2: down. Right, and this this is probably the classic career issue for uh, professional individuals. Whether it's in uh, you know your your financial analysis or or a teacher in a school, you know the the good teachers they tap them and say, "Yo, you should get into administration," right? Yes, (laughs) and and uh, and unfortunately, our pay scales and our promotional uh, structures have. Uh, reinforce this error in thinking. Right? There are solutions to the problem, and some of the, of the more nimble organizations have figured out, you know, how to recognize the talents and how to promote people for, you know, the contributions that they're really motivated to make, and you know, keep the good researchers doing research, uh, but reward them, you know, career-wise and salary-wise.
1: Well, we're going to have to have you back for a follow-up episode because that sounds like an entire discussion right by itself.
2: Yeah. It is, and, and it's, it's a really important um, application of this, uh, you know, understanding motivational patterns, a really important application. We've talked a little bit about people who are really, really motivated by recognition, and maybe they move into a team situation where their efforts are very blended with other folks, and there's just little or no risk, uh, opportunity for individual recognition. And that's, that's a powerful demotivator. And it's often one that's hard for the individual to go, you know, knock on the supervisor's door and lay it out on the table, right? And say, I just don't feel like I'm getting enough recognition.
1: Yeah, I want to be recognized more. It does. It's not right. something you would say to some, uh, a supervisor.
2: Yeah. Right. You, so you have to figure it out in, in terms, uh, you know, of how to present this in a way that that uh, makes sense in terms of that he he or she will understand that it really is an important part of your performance to have that. Uh,
1: Hopefully everybody who's listening is very excited to learn about their motivational pattern and sees the value in it. Um, But the process of understanding your motivational, motivated abilities is a little bit different. So I'm sure everybody has taken a Myers-Briggs test um, or maybe a strong interest inventory or one of those other psychometric tests that you get at career services, this is different than that. And I think that difference is is what makes it powerful. Can you tell me how you develop a motivational pattern for somebody that you work with?
2: But what we work with in identifying the pattern is the life-work achievements that you select as being something that you have enjoyed doing and felt you've done well. And we ask you... To go back, you know, early in your life, as you could recall, often as uh, pre-kindergarten that, that uh, an individual will come up with, you know, something that they remember. It doesn't have to be, you know, Nobel Prize quality, as we always say. But if you can just go through your life and think of uh, life work achievements that you really enjoyed doing and felt you did well. And just build a chronology. You know, think of grade school, you know, junior high, high school, blah, 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 all down the line come up with uh, this list, and then from the list, select eight achievements that you feel are really, the really best illustrate what you find as enjoyable and and, um, that you feel you did well. So you select those achievements, and then you describe those those in detail. And by detail, I mean you tell how you got started, uh, how you knew what to do, what was it that you did, uh, were there any Particular uh, resources that you required. What was the, what else was going on? There's just a whole host of questions that are listed in your in your uh, assessment form, and to provide some, the really good detail about uh, these eight achievements that you've selected. Then, for most people, we like to interview them too. It gives us a chance to ask you questions that about things that you may have overlooked, uh, and to pursue the level of detail that really gives us as an analyst picture of you in action. So we can be sort of like a fly on the wall and, and be seeing how you were performing these particular tasks. And so then when we have all that data, all that detail, then it's, it's our job as an analyst to uh, look for the recurring themes and these themes They're illustrations of your behavior and they're evidence. We like to use that word evidence. They're evidence of what it is that you really enjoy doing and do well. And we use that, put that evidence in the five different categories that I spoke to you about earlier. The subject matter, the abilities, the circumstances, how you relate to others, the result. And from all this data, then we provide, we compose um, your motivational pattern. And just comment a little bit about the differences between this assessment and other assessments that you may have taken and, and Daniel mentioned some of them. Most assessments, interest assessments, uh, behavior assessments that you take are what we call preference based. And what that means is the results are compiled from the preferences that you make in choosing response to either multiple, que- multiple choice questions or maybe rating on a scale. But you are given the, the sort of the answer is, you know, a choice of the answers which you then select. Now, these are easy to score. They can be done on a computer very easily. But they have a major, major flaw. And that is that most of the time our preferences are biased. And what are they biased by? They're biased by what we think we should answer, what we, maybe it's what we think we want to be or what others want us to be or how it might, you know, impact whatever it is that we're trying to decide on. So our preferences are not clean evidence. They're they are so, you know, uh, impacted by our biases. And so their reliability and validity, if you go in and look at the those scores for those uh, kinds of preference-based instruments, they're not very high, and they're not very effective in making informed career decisions. And, and then by contrast, the system for identifying motivated abilities is an evidence-based assessment. And by that, I mean the results are obtained by looking at the evidence that you have provided by virtue of describing your achievements. And we, again, look for the recurring themes in that evidence. So the validity and the reliability of this assessment is much higher because uh, it moves away from the bias that's in the preference-based assessments and relies more on the, the evidence that's um, presented by the individual themselves.
1: And, and let me just punctuate this because I'm looking at my, my motivational pattern and it says, um, it's, very, it's very funny to me now, it says under, under people, it says there is no recurring evidence of motivation to work with people. And I have a little note in the sidebar, and I, and I said, let's talk about this. I wonder if my stories were biased. I tend to be generally friendly. I really like making, you know, friends. So, if you had asked me on a preference-based assessment, do I like working with people? Of course I do, because I do like people. But what you drew out of the stories that I wrote were what I focused on in those stories. So, if people write stories about working on a Habitat for Humanity house and one talks about learning the buildings, how to build, and one person talks about the camaraderie of the team, they, they went and did the same thing. They both enjoyed it, but they enjoyed it for different reasons. And they tell you those reasons by how they described their achievements. And I think that's what's so powerful here. You're, you're just taking my words, you're, you're taking my lens on the world, what I saw through my eyes, and you're underlining it for me and saying, look, Yes, you're working around people, but that's not what you wrote about. That's not what's motivating you to um, to succeed. And so, it's just so interesting to me that you, again, it can tell you things about yourself that maybe you weren't ready to admit. And I, I wasn't at this time, obviously, with the note I wrote. But I can look back now and say, yes, when I work, I want to be in a quiet space by myself working on a project that I have defined. And um, that's so powerful for me, for me to be able to look back and see that I would have been nervous about that result if I had gotten it on a preference assessment.
2: And that's, that's a very good illustration. And you know, it's just surprising uh, how many people do not you know, make that differentiation. I mean, just because you are not motivated to work with people doesn't mean that you are unfriendly or an ogre or antisocial or anything, <laughs> right?
1: Exactly. It just
2: means that when you work, you have something else that you want to work with. And it's just so critical for people to understand that about themselves.
1: How can people, first of all, how can they learn more? Tell them about where to find your book. And then if they want to work with you, how can they get in touch with you?
2: Okay. Well, the book is, as Daniel has said, Passion and Purpose,
0: How to Identify
2: and Leverage the Powerful Patterns that Shape Your Work and Life. There are several books entitled Passion and Purpose now uh, there weren't when I published this in 2002, but it's become a popular <laughs> phrase. I think so. You use use my name with it, then you'll get the right one. And it's it's a Kindle book now. Um, I am working on a on a new edition, so maybe we'll get that out one of these first days. But right now, it's available on Kindle. I think it's like 10 bucks or something like that, and um, that, that's a quick way to get a copy.
1: Uh, I strongly encourage everybody to to pick it up and read it. It does It has uh, the steps that you would take to maybe begin this assessment on your own. You mentioned that it, it yes. benefits from somebody professionally going through with you and and highlighting some things. again, things that maybe you wouldn't recognize about yourself. But you can pick up this book, understand what a motivational pattern is, and and maybe start the steps of thinking through what some of your your stories are that you want to tell, your your achievements that you want to be able to describe. And then how would they get in touch to, to have a professional uh, SEMA analysis done?
2: The website is uh, www.motivationalpattern And that's singular, not patterns, but pattern. Motivationalpattern.com. And it, it uh, gives the whole background as well as how to get started. And you can contact me through that. My email address is m hanson that's h-a-n-s-o-n 539 at aol.com and you can also shoot me a note i do want to say too that this assessment was developed in 1963 by the late dr arthur miller and dr miller had you know had trained a number of of analysts uh, including myself uh, years ago and we go we continue to uh, train others and and get others involved, but I always like to give credit to Dr. Miller for his, you know, just really significant contribution to uh, making more informed and accurate career life decisions.
1: Well, I, I have to say, it's not every day you get to interview the author of a book that changed your life, but today I did, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your work and and helping to encourage us to be the best us we can be.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure, Daniel. Uh, first of all, to hear that you have made such good use of understanding your pattern. So thank you very much for asking me.
0: Dan, first of all, I want to say, I bet she was glad to hear from you again.
1: I don't think she's been thinking a lot about me for 15 years, <laughs> but I, I think it must be fun for her to hear from people that she's helped and, and this, you know, this many years after the fact to know she identified things about me that I didn't know at the time and that I have recognized over the years. I mean, to me, it was just amazing to look back. I hadn't, I hadn't looked at those documents in quite a while, but there's something real about it, something very true. And it was just a delight to talk to somebody that had, helped me
0: so much. Well, and how great is it to go on that journey of self-discovery and use that information you learn about yourself to actually factor into your decision-making for something as, as big a part of your life as your career? I think so many of us, we fail to do that or we get the tunnel vision or this viewpoint of what we think we should be doing based on others' expectations or even our Our past selves expectations. I know that was something that was really, really true to me. And listening, Dan, to your interview, it really harkened me back to my own experiences when I was a postdoc and having a real career crisis. You know, I'd been on this path of thinking I wanted to be a faculty member for really my whole research career from undergrad to postdoc until suddenly that wasn't really what I wanted to do anymore. But like you mentioned, Dan, when you were in grad school, I think that's where I hit my critical moment where okay, I think I don't want to do this, but if not this, what do I do? Has, have all these years just been for waste? Am I going to have to completely start from scratch? Or, and honestly, it seems so crazy to think this now, but I think there was a part of me that really felt like, well, I've made my bed, I've got to lay in it, I guess I'll just suck it up and have this career that's completely unsatisfying to me for the rest of my life. And it wasn't until you know I did some of these things that the Marlis was talking about that really had a big impact. And, and I know you did a lot of that work earlier on you know, when you were in grad school.
1: No, you're, you're so right. And I think it is a little bit freeing to be able to look back at your path and say, I wasn't crazy to come to graduate school. There are factors in my history, in my motivated pattern that say, I'm probably very drawn to science or I'm very drawn to the notion of, of continuing to learn or to um, put a lot of of my interest in my attention into science or research or biology or I, th- I think it's helpful to be able to say this is how I got here And then to be able to say but to move forward in this in these motivated abilities, what I want is the science as a topic or what I want is experimentation as a motivated ability but what i don't want is to work in a team of 15 people or what i don't want is to have to write or what i don't want is to have to apply for grants so it really is uh, I, I matched to research science in some ways but not in other ways and there were some other things i could be doing that were a better match and so it's really this misfit um some things overlap some things don't and by being able to identify those things, I can find a much better match for my personality. And that's what's so great. I wasn't wrong. I just needed to tweak things a little bit to find something perfect for me.
0: And and I think that's where I hope that there is some movement and some change in academic science training, where there's a recognition or an increased appreciation for the fact that there are many paths and many motivations that lead people into research and lead people into graduate school. And also, there are just as many, if not more, paths that lead out of grad school. There's so many different types of motivations you can have, and there are so many fulfilling careers you can move towards with that degree, with whatever it is you learned in graduate school that that really are a good fit for whoever you are and whatever motivates you. You know, I really love the sentiment and connected with one of the things that you all talked about and one of the things she said, which is that just because you can learn something or just because you can even do something well, that doesn't mean that it's a good fit for you. And, I, you know, I can almost remember being a high school student who did well in math class and did well in science class and... And I almost remember, I don't even know exactly where it came from, but almost like there was this societal or familial expectation of, well, if you can do well in these classes, this is a better path to go on, or this is the path you should go on. And I think that really followed me a little bit through um, through college, where for a while I thought, oh, well, I guess I should go to med school because that seems to be what the other people in my biology major are doing. Even though I don't think that's what I want to do. Um, And then discovering research almost was like discovering this community where I fit, Um, as much as it was, I love pipetting things and I love designing experiments. Um, But you know, I can remember in my postdoc where I did the self reflection and finally identified things about myself that were a good match for who I was and what my motivations are. And once I did that work, being aware of a career opening, a career opportunity that was a good fit for me, this moment of excitement and burden lifted off of me for the first time in years was suddenly met with this crushing blow of academic advisors and mentors I had who, when I told them about it, they immediately said, oh, well, that would be a big mistake to go that way. And I can still feel how crushing that was to think, oh, I figured this important thing out about myself. And I think this is a great direction for me to go and to literally be told you're making a big mistake. was really disheartening.
1: That is probably the most important thing that you can learn in your life. And I, I agree with you 100%. Once you have confidence once you can develop the confidence in who you are and what it is you want, then you can move forward in a way that you can't do if you are constantly searching for who you are. So if external forces, if your advisor, if society, if the newspaper tells you that this other thing is important, then you will be swayed. And you I can almost promise you you will end up miserable in your career. If you can identify who you are and what it is you want to work on. And people say, well, actually, don't you want to make a little more money in this field? Or wouldn't it be better if you had more prestige over here? And you say, I don't want to manage people. That's not who I am. I would be miserable doing that and having the confidence to say that you can work toward a career that, that works for you and makes you happy. But I, I totally agree with you, Josh. It will be constant. The, the pressure from the outside to do something that is not who you are will keep happening and I felt it in my career and and we talked about it a little bit in the interview but the ability to say that's not who I am and I know if I walk down that path I'm going to be unhappy and I won't walk down that path even if I give up all of these other things um, it's just so important to identify this the earlier you do it the better but again it's never too late and and it's so it's so freeing to look back over your career and say oh when I was when I was on that team, and I was doing these tasks, I was so unhappy. But this is why, because this is not one of my motivated abilities. And when I was doing this other thing that didn't seem as important, but maybe really made me happy, that's why. And it's just so beautiful to be able to look back over your career, even if you're a little bit more advanced, and, and to know those things about yourself.
0: You're absolutely right about that confidence. It, it's sort of like once you go down that road, once you have that self-realization about your motivations, there's no closing your eyes again. I mean, you you now know this about yourself and you're absolutely right. It does give you a confidence and a purpose um, towards your, uh, about your career. And you know, I can remember in those conversations where I was told I was making a mistake, I can specifically remember one conversation where I was told, you know, you could be a faculty member and in that moment, I remember then having the confidence to say, but I don't want to.
1: And not feeling like you're missing out or you're a bad person or you had failed in life. It's saying, even if I achieved that, even if I did what you wanted, I don't want it.
0: That's right. And you know what, Dan? Um, you know, you mentioned that pressure, I don't know if it's the pressure to conform or the pressure to uh, follow along a certain a certain path um, is constant. I think that's true up to the point that you have that self-realization and you verbalize those things to yourself and others that you want to do. Because one thing I have found is, and I think you you probably have this experience too, Dan, those same people who were trying to talk me out of walking down a different career path in that moment, I still know them. I still keep in touch with them. And they're very proud of what I've done now. And they're very supportive of what I'm doing now. Because I think I've been so much more successful than I would have been going down the path they wanted for me because um, it's 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 living into more who I am and what's a natural fit for me. So, I think people will come along beside you when people see you doing the thing that you are best meant to do. People recognize that and ultimately are supportive of that.
1: It's the difference between being unmotivated in a job and motivated in a job and, and people will always applaud you and recognize your motivation and something you're passionate about. And they will probably always notice when you are unmotivated and uninterested and doing the minimum to get by in a job that is not part of your your motivational profile. So what I want to leave everybody with, you do not need to begin this process by hiring a a counseling psychologist to do your motivational profile that's not what i did i was in graduate school um money was tight what i did was i got the book i wrote out my eight stories that we talked about and i under i went through and underlined all of the the nouns in the sentences that i used to to start to identify what are the motivated um subject matters that I was interested in I started to underline all the verbs or circle them and now here are all the motivated motivated abilities I was doing and I looked for evidence did I work with people in stories number two and eight but not the rest of them and did I work with animals or did I focus on music or whatever it was and you can really start to highlight the evidence from the stories that you've written yourself now you may come to a point where you know 90% of, of your motivated abilities, and that's perfect. If you want to get to the ones that you may not recognize in yourself because you are afraid to, which I was, certainly, I, I was not re- ready to admit I wasn't motivated to work with people because that had a stigma in my mind. Then you can, you can turn it over to a friend to look at your stories for you, or you can work with somebody who is a professional at this. My, my point is, go do it. It doesn't need to be a big burden. It doesn't need to be a big cost, but take the time to look back over your history and start to identify some of these traits about yourself, because it will only help you in the future.
0: You're here, here, Dan. Like you said, Dan, we're going to have a link to, to the book, uh, passion and purpose, how to identify and leverage the powerful patterns that shape your work life, um, in our show notes, uh, check it out. And, And let us know if you've done some of this self-reflection, if doing this work to learn more about yourself has an impact on the way you think about your career.
1: I love it, Josh. And if you have a question or a topic, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We enjoy the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you want to support us, you become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer slash wine money.
0: Maybe both at the same time.
1: Yeah, thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Uh, Josh, thank you for walking with me on the trip down memory lane. I, I don't know how often this happens that you get to look back over your life and enjoy a turning point but for me it was great and i really appreciate appreciate you indulging me
0: felt like old times listening to that interview dan
1: it's like quarter life crisis support group
0: <laughs> i felt like i was there at the table at the, whatever the bar was we used to hang out hang out in back in grad school
1: drinking beer and wine but in separate cups
0: and you were and you were telling me about this book you were reading
1: it is true. I'm, I am positive that I told you about the book 15 years ago.
0: All right, Dan. Well, great discussion, and looking forward to talking with you again soon.
1: i will see you next time, Josh.